Good morning, friends. It is my joy to continue with you this morning in our series through Acts by taking up Acts chapter 15. And if you're visiting with us and don't own a copy of the Bible, the first thing I want to do is offer you one that we've provided for you within arm's reach uh, nearby to where you're sitting. We'd love for you to take that, not just to use it this morning, but to, to, to have it for the rest of the week, to, to begin to read what you'll find there. And, and Lord willing, to, to come to us with questions that it may raise for you. Because all of our hope in life and in death is contained in what we believe God has said to us in these pages. What we want for you is what we have found here. So we'd love for you to take this as our gift to you and, and love the chance to follow up with you about what you're going to hear this morning. Uh, you'll find the text we're going to consider this morning on page 869 in the Bible that, that we've provided in front of you. If you want to go ahead and turn over there, it'll help you. Because... As you now know from having heard what David just read, we are covering a lot of ground in a little bit of time this morning. I think it'll be a tremendous advantage to you to have this text open as I refer back to it, but move pretty quickly through it. Um, I, I, many of you guys will know that uh, a few weeks back, uh, back in July, towards the end of the month, uh, my family had a chance to travel to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, a kind of work-related getaway provided by our church to do some extra thinking and a and, and little bit of writing and, and just a break from the normal pattern of work that, that my life normally involves uh, and a chance to spend some wonderful quality time together as a family. So first of all, thank you. Whether you knew you did that or not, you gave us a great, great gift that we have thoroughly enjoyed and are kind of still living on. Uh, while we were there, it was part of the days I'm, I'm working in an office doing normal work stuff, but we were just packing our schedule full with one touristy thing after another. I mean, we my kids asked uh, maybe the, the first or second day we were there. It kind of hit them as we were walking around the city. Wait a second. Dad, are, are we the tourists here? <laughs> They're so used to us complaining about tourists trying to run over us on bird scooters on the sidewalks in front of our house. Like, oh, now we're the people that we always make fun of in our own city. Yep, we are. And we made no apologies for it. This city is, this, the whole city itself is almost like a monument to the, the origins, the history, the key people, and the key moments that make up our country's past. And I'm a sucker for all of it. Uh, I can't get enough of it. I can't really explain why. I mean, since I was a little kid, there's just something about the past that, that draws me in uh, at a level uh, that I can't quite put words to. There's a, there's a wonder at approaching the origins of things that I have, at the, the people and the, and the places and the objects behind the epic moments that made us who we are. And we touched on so many of them over the course of two weeks. We went to Mount Vernon, for example, walked up the driveway that George Washington would have ridden home on after Yorktown and had his view of his house that was waiting for him. We went into its parlor, the same parlor where he would have entertained pretty much all the founding fathers and no telling who else. We saw the bed where he died. We then went to, uh, to the Library of Congress, went into the Jefferson Building, and in that building saw Jefferson's actual library. I don't mean the Library of Congress. That's basically every book ever written that they could get their hands on. I mean a display with his actual books. We're looking at the books that this man would have pulled off of his own shelf to consult while writing the Declaration of Independence. What is that? At the Smithsonian, one of them, we saw the actual flag that was flying above Fort McHenry in the twilight's last gleaming and at the dawn's early light. At Ford's Theater, 
We saw the box where Lincoln watched the fateful play and the door through which John Wilkes Booth had snuck up behind him carrying the little Derringer pistol that was also on display at Ford's Theater. We stayed a block away from the home of Frederick Douglass, stared at the door he would have walked in on returning home from his many worldwide and nationwide speaking tours, looked through the windows at the rooms where he would have written speeches that have, that have changed America. That sounds a little creepy. Somebody actually lives there. So we stood there and looked inside their, their windows, but uh, I'm sure they're used to it by now. Y you get my point. There's something just awe-inspiring to me about approaching the origins of things. And I, all week, studying Acts chapter 15, have had that exact same feeling. That, that in this story, we're approaching something near to the beating heart of Christianity itself. It's another origin story in a book full of origin stories, but one so important to the book of Acts that it's been called the turning point, the centerpiece of the book, the watershed of the story Luke tells. It's the first major controversy in the young history of the church. And it's a controversy around which the stakes just could not have been any higher. A controversy that struck right at the heart of what it is to be a Christian and how you become one. And here through Luke's storytelling in Acts chapter 15, we get to go right into the room where it happened. That's what we're going to do together with these minutes that we have. I want to simply do three things this morning. I want to first introduce you to the question at the heart of this debate. That's point number one. The question, it's this. What does it take to be saved? Another way to put the same question would be, what could justify my life? That's the question. That's where we'll begin. The story won't make any sense unless that part is really clear. Then we'll go to the answer, point number two. The answer is that all it takes for a person to be saved all that you need is the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then finally, we'll look at the consequence. That'll be point number three. When, you, when what you have is Jesus, when what you have is his grace, then there's nothing you can't set aside for others. Point number one, the question. What does it take to be saved? Now, I realize that's probably not a question that kept any of you awake last night. You probably didn't wake up with that question on your mind this morning. Put like that, it, it's not actually a question most of us think about very often, but it's, it's a crucial question. And besides the fact that the stakes couldn't be higher for answering this question in the right way, I, what I want to show you this morning is that I, I believe it. It's a question that really matters to you, even if you haven't had these words to put to it. You have lived with this question in your gut if you've never put words to it in your mind. I, I want to I show you this by first putting the question into their context, the context into which Luke was, was writing, why this question made so much sense to them. And then we'll pull out of their context and back into ours and talk about how this question shows up for you in your life. So let, let's, let's transport ourselves back in time, back to this, this setting for Acts 15, and try to understand this question in their context. Pick up with me back in verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have just gotten home from their first missionary journey. We don't know how long they've been back home, but they're in Antioch with their sending church in Syria, just north of Israel. 
It's a church that's made up of Gentiles and Jews, and they've just witnessed the incredible expansion of the gospel into, into Gentile areas among mostly Gentile people. They're still pro- surely like, reveling in the joy of what, of what news Paul and Barnabas have brought back to them. When from the south, from Judea, most likely from Jerusalem, a group of teachers arrives in Antioch. These teachers want to put their own spin on the message that Paul and Barnabas have just taken to the nations. These teachers say, verse 1 of chapter 15, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The question in their context, the core of, of this story that we're looking at, in their context was something more like, how Jewish does a Christian need to be? If you want to get in on Jesus, how much of Moses do you have to take as part of the bargain? What do you need besides Jesus to be good with God and welcome in his church? This group that was insisting on circumcision was insisting on the entry right that had always been there for Israel. When you were born into Israel or when you converted in from the outside, you were always circumcised as the first step into belonging in the people of God if you were a male. And this group that that, that comes into Antioch in this story is a group that shows up again and again all over the New Testament, mostly through the letters of Paul. I mean, one of Paul's main goals for his whole life's ministry was to put down the work that these guys were trying to do. He was often writing to churches to protect them from the influence of this way of thinking. I mean... The best case, or best example of, of Paul at work doing this sort of thing is the letter to Galatians. Uh, it's a letter that he wrote to churches that we just saw him plant in our story from last week. On his first missionary journey, he went through Galatia into these major cities that are in that region. And he started the work of the church in, this, in these places. As soon as he's pulled out, these teachers start to move in. They start to undermine the message that Paul has given by adding to the message that Paul has given, saying not only do you need Jesus to stand for you in your sin before God, but you need need the laws of Moses too. They saw Christ, in other words, and the movement that Jesus began as something like a reform movement inside of Judaism, where the big tent is Judaism, and Jesus is a subset of it. You You need the whole package. Jesus is part of that package. Where where for Paul, Jesus is the big tent. Judaism and the laws of Moses were part of building this, this, this pathway towards Jesus. He fulfills all of it. They get their usefulness in light of him. For these teachers, the rules that Moses laid down are still rules we need to please God. And if you want in on Jesus, you've got to come in on these customs too. And the lightning rod for this way of thinking was always circumcision. Now... I think we need to be empathetic here a little bit with with why these teachers would have thought the way that they did. I mean, think about the fact that that, that we're still just talking about a handful of years since Jesus walked the earth and lived and died and rose again. It hasn't been that long. Think about how powerful these customs had been, these laws in the lives of the Jewish people. These things were powerful enough. They had a a strong enough grip on them that they were able to hold on to their own separate identity as a people, even after hundreds and hundreds of years of living as 
basically colonies within someone else's empire. They resisted that huge pressure to become Babylonian or Persian or Greek or now Roman. They held on to who they were through these customs. They were precious and powerful in their life. And, and Jesus was, wasn't that long ago. This is all still so new. It's not difficult to understand why they would have felt the pull of these old ways. In fact, it was such a strong pull that in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 2, he talks about a time probably right before this story where Peter had come up to Antioch where he and Barnabas were. And Peter was eating dinner with the Gentiles just like God had told him to when he had his vision uh, before seeing Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter is living this new style of life that God had ushered him into. And then some, some more Jews show up. And they don't want to sit at the same table as the Gentiles. They see these Gentiles uncircumcised as they are, as unclean and unworthy of their fellowship. And in that moment, not only Peter, but even Barnabas, Paul says, was pulled in. The pull of that old way of identifying themselves was too strong. And for the moment, they went over here to the table with Jews only and left the Gentiles in their uncleanness back at the table they, they had just been sitting at. Paul has to confront Peter in that moment, telling him, you're stepping out of the line of the gospel. This is not what we believe about Jesus and how a person benefits from him. This was a live controversy, in other words, one that even pulled Peter in and Barnabas in for a moment. That's the question in their context. How Jewish does a person have to be to get in on Jesus? What do you need besides Jesus if you want to have peace with God? Now, I realize that in our context, most of us just aren't hung up on the need for circumcision in order to please God. Most of us aren't really thinking hard about whether or not we have to keep all the commands and the law of Moses. And I, I'm imagining that that concern about how Jewish you have to be to get in on Jesus must seem especially foreign to you this morning if you're not a Christian. I, mean, I promised you at the very beginning that we were going to get a look into the room where it happened and all you see in that room so far may look like a foreign planet altogether. But still, if, if, I, if I can encourage you to just step with me one step further, still, even now, we are all hung up on justification, even when that isn't the label we give to our issues. We live now, Christian and, and non-Christian alike, we live in a general environment that philosophers have referred to as a secular age. In other words, a world where, where you don't have to assume the existence of God to make sense of everything. A world without a divine power that oversees things. Without a divine power that's paying attention to our lives. Without a standard for what's right and wrong that's bigger than any one of us and our preferences. Without a clear view of where we came from and what our lives are supposed to be about. That's a shift that's happened over the last hundred years that's taken deep roots now in a culture that all of us live and breathe in, even those of us who believe in Jesus. And at first, this shift was hailed as liberation, freedom. Now we get to decide what our lives are supposed to be about. We get to, to define what a good and flourishing human life looks like. But this, this shift has come with huge downsides, too. For one thing, this so-called freedom has done nothing to change the sense that, that we, have, we have to live our lives basically on trial. 
It's not a sense that we can shake even when we try to write God out of the picture. All that's happened really is just a lack of clarity on who's watching over us, what we're supposed to be and do, and how we'll know when we've done enough to justify our lives. I don't know a better example of this problem, one that's more relatable, at least to me, than an excerpt from an Arthur Miller play that a friend shared with me recently. It's a play called After the Fall. And in it, one character, uh, one character who's been living his life for approval without a God there to approve sums up sums up his, his angst like this. Listen to what he says. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I'd be justified or, or even condemned, a, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. All that remained was the endless argument with myself. The pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. I wonder if you can see what what Miller, through this character, is getting at. Friends, we can do away with the notion of a God who made us, a God who rules the world, a God with a right to our love and obedience. We can take that God, that judge, out from behind the bench. But we can't take away the sense that we owe something to somebody. That our life is supposed to mean something. We're left with this sense that, that we have something to prove to someone. But no way to know what we've got to prove or who to or how we'll know when we've gotten there. And worst of all, when we fail to measure up to standards we may set for ourselves. When we fall short of what we thought we should be. There's no one there to pardon us. No one there to forgive us. Just an unshakable angst about what good enough looks like and what to know and what to do when, when whatever that looks like, whatever good enough might be, you certainly haven't hit the target. Friends, if you've ever felt angst like this of any sort, if this is relating to you on any level at all, then you have asked in your heart, if not in your mind, the very same question at the heart of our story this morning. How can a person be saved? What would it take for my life to be justified? Now, with the question as our backdrop, I want to take you into the answer. Point number two, the answer. The only thing you need is the grace of the Lord Jesus. The only thing you need is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Friends, the question at the heart of this story was so important to the early Christians that they convened a meeting in Jerusalem to discuss it. Everyone had to be there. The stakes couldn't be higher. They immediately noticed it. So we're told here at the beginning of this story that Paul and Barnabas, after having it out with these teachers themselves inside the context of their church in Antioch, they and some uh, some of the others get appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem about this question. That's verse 2. 
So they're sent on their way. Verses 3 and 4 describe them going down from Antioch to Jerusalem, stopping at places where there were Christians to tell them what had been happening on these missionary journeys, just how many Gentiles had come to faith. And everywhere they go, there's this huge rejoicing. God is at work. This is amazing. Look what he's doing. Then they reach Jerusalem, verse 4, and they're welcomed there with the same kind of joy. But, verse 5 says, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And now, verse 7, it's game on. That's the room I wish I could be in. Oh, to have had a transcript of the much debate that Luke refers to in verse 7. After there had been much debate, we're told, over this matter, it's a live issue. Peter rises to speak, and Peter's answer is the only answer you need. His answer is the only faithful answer to this question. The only answer that gives life and hope and peace to anyone. Let me walk you through what he has to say. Keep the text open in front of you. Come with me now into verse 7. Peter's focus, starting here in verse 7, step by step, is not on what Peter thinks about what should be done, but on what God has already done, on what they've witnessed from him that, 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 that gives you the only answer that you're going to need. What they've seen God doing before their very eyes starts in verse 7. You know, he says, in the early days, God made a choice among you. What did God choose to do in your presence before your very eyes? That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the first thing God did. It was his choice to take this message of, of salvation through Jesus to them. He's talking about Acts chapter 10. The, the, this, the vision that he had that took him into Cornelius and Cornelius' family. Then the next thing that God did. Look back with me into the text. Verse 8. And God... The same God who sent this word to the Gentiles, this God who knows the heart, bore witness to them, speaking about the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, God moved all the way into them. You treat them like they're unclean without circumcision. God himself dwells in them by his spirit, just like he dwells in us. And there's more. Verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So this God who sent the word to them, this God who put his spirit in them, also gave them faith and cleansed their hearts. That's the sum of the main promise that Israel was holding on to ever since the prophets had declared that one of these days, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to write my law on your heart. In your heart, I will do a work that the law outside of you could never do. He has now done that work cleansed them and given them faith in their own hearts. Now, now if God has done all of this, Peter says, when you ask them to do more, you put him to the test. These rules, this circumcision, these customs, adding adding that burden onto the Gentiles, that's not just between you and the Gentiles. That's between you and God. You're disagreeing with him about who they are and what they need. Moses had nothing to do with it except in his role as a pathmaker. For Jews, for Gentiles, for anyone from anywhere, 
we must depend on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 11. That's the central answer to this central question. We believe that we, speaking about the Jews now, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, friends, I think that answer right there is about as clear as it could be. I don't think it could be much more simple than that. But it, it, the answer to this question, Peter's answer to this question, it is so it is so important and so counterintuitive that I think it's worth us spending a few more minutes here. Not in trying to understand what the answer is, because I think that is so clear. You need Jesus and only Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from. But, but in understanding what it takes for us to accept that answer in our hearts. I want to press this in by speaking directly to three groups in the room this morning. What does this answer mean for you? Peter's answer. If you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian this morning, what Peter's answer means to you is that you are invited right here, right now to become one. All you have to do is receive this grace that's offered to you by God. Friends, God's opinion of you is the only opinion that matters. That's what Peter is saying here. Another way to put what he's saying here is that the bench is not empty after all. It's occupied by the God who made everything. By the God who made heaven and earth and every one of us. It's occupied by the one who has given you every breath that you've ever taken as a free gift of grace and love from him to you. It's occupied by the one who made your life on purpose, for a purpose that he gave to you, whether you knew you had it or not. And the truth is that every one of us, me and you, every one of us have failed to embrace the purpose that God has given to us and have chosen instead to live for purposes we give to ourselves. We haven't honored him as God in our lives. We haven't sought after him despite the fact that he has sought after us through gift after gift after gift. We haven't loved him or obeyed him with all our hearts. And yet God has sent his son to live and die for us. He sent his only son to bear the cost of our guilt and shame, to carry a burden that would have crushed us. He's done that by grace. And if God accepts you because you accept what Jesus did for you, you're acceptable all the way up and down. With God, the one and only thing that matters is simply, who is Jesus to you? Do you have faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus? If so, you get him. You get all of him. You get his spirit in you and with you for an intimacy and power that you just can't even imagine. You can enjoy the freedom offered here today. There's no entry fee. There's no skills assessment. There's nothing but faith in his grace. That's what Peter has said. So, so what it means for you is, is that you're posed with another question this morning. Will, will you receive him? Will you set aside whatever path you're on, trying to justify your life to whoever you may believe is out there, and accept justification before God as a free gift of grace? You can. 
We'd love to talk to you more about what that could look like. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is an answer for you to listen to as well. An answer that, that even when it's become familiar, is often still difficult to accept at the level of our hearts. What this answer means for you, Christian, today is you must rest in his grace. And that takes work sometimes. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, at a kind of functional level, even if it's not self-conscious, even if it's not what we would say, we Christians continue to live as if we had something to prove to God or to others. As if we have to make our lives count. As if there's something that's still left to be done to justify ourselves besides what Jesus has already done for us. In other words, as if Jesus is there as a kind of safety net, he'll catch us if we fall, a kind of minimum requirement, but all of our focus is on climbing this ladder that we use to try to rise up above everybody else. Or maybe to change the metaphor a little bit, it's possible for us, even as Christians, to think about Jesus as what you need for a passing grade, you know, to to move on to the next level. But what really lifts our head and stirs our heart is the possibility of a little bit of extra credit. Where might this show up? I think it shows up a lot of times, friends, in whatever it might be that we hope other people will notice about us. Now, that's going to be as different uh, between all of us in this room. You'll get get a different answer to this question for, for, for as many people as are in here. What do you hope others will notice about you? Probably it's something specific to you, something unique, some way in which you stand out. Maybe another way to see where this problem shows up in our hearts is, is, is the things we look to to comfort ourselves when we've disappointed ourselves in some other area. Or maybe you can accept you didn't measure up in this area over here that matters to some people, but at least I've got. So maybe my kids aren't going to win any Nobel Prizes. Okay. Maybe I'm not making my own soap for a step-by-step how-to blog. But you know what? I'm a fun mom. My kids are laid back like kids ought to be. I let them be kids. I let everything hang out. They'll thank me for that one day, even if we don't have an online audience. Or maybe I'm not the funniest preacher in the world. It's probably safe to, to say. But I make up for it by excessive length and intricate detail, you know, for the, for the, for the discriminating listener. I mean, I, you guys can understand what, I, what I'm getting at. I'm being silly here a little bit, but you can see what I'm getting at, right? It's so easy to slip into into thinking we're justified by whatever sets us apart from others. Whatever I don't like about myself, I make up for by this one thing that I think is me. It's what I've got. It's what no one else has. How do you comfort yourself when you've disappointed yourself? You might find a place where Jesus isn't enough for you. And resting in this grace that Peter has offered as the one answer we need to the question of what it takes to be saved, resting in this grace the answer that Peter has given to us, it is a daily battle. It means daily repentance. It means learning to quickly recognize our desire to stand out and call it for what it is. It is sinful self-righteousness. It is Pharisaism in a different garb. Growing as a Christian often means 
growing into a deeper and deeper and deeper rest in the only justification we're ever going to need, knowing that there is no one anywhere any more worthy than anyone else who's already found in Christ. It's going to mean growing less and less impressed with ourselves, more and more content with the righteousness that I share with everybody else who's ever had faith in Jesus. Every other brother and sister under heaven stands in exactly the same place as I do. Once you've once you've come to recognize how toxic it is to live on that treadmill of righteousness, trying to keep up, trying to, to get ahead, then you can understand that this, this right here is a crowd I'm happy to slip into. I'm happy to disappear in the crowd of the righteous, who are righteous because Jesus made them so, not because they earned it. As a Christian, it takes work to rest like this, to accept what Peter says, that we're on a level playing field with anyone else and just as dependent on grace all the way up and down. Friends, it's, it's one thing to look at other people and say, yeah, with genuine love for them, say, all you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. But can you look at your own life and say, all I have is Christ. Can you, like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, look at all the things that set you apart? Maybe what tribe you're from or where you went to school or how well you did there. Paul's got this list in Philippians 3 of all of his unique accomplishments. And he looks at it and he looks at Jesus and he says, rubbish, all I have is Christ. Can you say that? Not just all you need is Jesus. That'll be fine for you people. You'll get by on him but I, while I'm padding a resume over here. Can, can you instead look at your life and say, he's everything. Can you? Friends, I also want to, I also lastly here under this point, want to apply this to you if you're a member of our church. Peter's answer is so important for us as members of Edgefield Church to hold on to. Because for us, what this answer means is we must hold fast to the gospel of grace and defend it against all attackers. They're going to come in all sorts of guises. A lot of times it won't be clear that there's a threat. I mean, to, to many people, the, the, the laws that, that these Pharisees wanted to put on to other Christians seemed very normal. They were just basic. It didn't look threatening. It's not asking a lot. You know, it's just asking the same thing that, that, that hundreds and hundreds of years of us have been asked to do. Sometimes it'll be subtle. We'll have to be careful. But the point is that it's, it's your job as members of our church to hold on to this gospel. Now, in a, in a way... What happens here in Acts 15 happened once and for all. The people in this room where it happened, they had an authority we don't have. We are not apostles. We were not charged by Jesus to hand over and protect the message of, of hope and salvation in Christ. Our job is to hold on to what they handed down to us. They have an authority we don't. So we don't just, we don't just take this and then go do likewise. But... This message at the heart of what they handed down to us, we have to hold on to as the only thing we have to offer that will do anybody any good. There, there's a reason that this episode here is so important in Acts. There's a reason why the early church took this question, this challenge so seriously. Everything is at stake in getting this question right. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. This is, again, a letter Paul wrote 
to address this same problem probably right before this big meeting in Jerusalem. And he wrote it back to the churches that he had just planted in the story we looked at last week. He wrote to them in the very beginning of his letter, verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, if we, Paul and Barnabas, show back up, or even an angel from heaven, let's just go to the angels. If even an angel from heaven shows back up and preaches a different gospel, one contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what Paul's saying there? This gospel is bigger than me. Don't trust this gospel because you trust me. This gospel is my only hope in life and in death. It's all I've got. It's bigger than me. And now he's handing it on to this local church and saying, it's yours to defend from me if I come with another one. This church who, who learned everything it knows from him, he's now putting in a kind of authority over him. Not exactly, but the authority is in this message, this word. They're supposed to hold on to it and maybe even defend their own church from Paul if he comes back teaching another one. That's amazing. That same charge is given to you. We elders are here to help you. Here to teach this message to you, to keep putting it out in front of you over and over. But friends, this message is bigger than we are. Our purpose here in this church is partly to help you hold on to it. But we will come and go. In the history of our church, pastor after pastor has stood behind this pulpit, lived a life in service to the kingdom, and then died. I will too. So will Jonathan, so will every other elder in the church. There will come a time when we are not here to teach this gospel from this place anymore. This, this word from Peter was his last set of talking points in the book of Acts. He goes off the scene. This is it. He's out. And Acts carries on because this was never Peter's biography. This is not a story about him. He is a means to an end of a message of hope and peace. The only place you can find it through Jesus going out into the world. The story carries the message as far as it goes through the ancient world. And, and just like Peter, like one day we, we're out. But our hope and prayer must be that we'll have a congregation that's bought into the word, not to a person. It doesn't need anybody specific to give it to them as long as they're getting it. Are you hungry for this word of grace? What we want, friends, is, is a church that is just ravenous for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Longing to be fed this grace at every level of our church's life. When you come in on a Sunday morning, what I hope you come hungry for is the grace of the Lord Jesus. When you sing songs to one another, what I hope you're noticing in those songs, what I hope you're echoing to all your friends around this room is not the musicianship or whether the lyrics are your favorite style, but the grace of the Lord Jesus that's recounted over and over and over again in song after song. The grace that's, that's recounted and then praised and offered through these songs all over the room. And when you listen on a Sunday, no matter who it is that's speaking to you, I hope all you want, what you demand from us behind this pulpit, is the grace of the Lord Jesus because you know it's the only thing that saves. What do you need to be saved? What could justify my life? There is only one answer. All you need and the only thing that works is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's already offered to you. Now, there's one final point to end on this morning. We've seen the question. We've seen the answer 
with the last few minutes here, I want to point you to the consequence. When you've appreciated this question and its weight, when you've accepted the answer that it's Jesus, all Jesus, only Jesus for everybody, there is a consequence that will develop in your life, an effect that will show up from that cause. It's this. When you have the grace of the Lord Jesus, there's nothing you can't set aside for others. When you have the grace of the Lord Jesus in your life, there's nothing that you can't set aside for others. To me, the trickiest part in this whole story is the part that begins in verse 13. Look back with the text to the text with me here. Let me pick up in verse 13. Peter has just finished his speech. All the assembly fell silent. They took his point, verse 12. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, sort of reinforcing Peter's point about all that God had done in their own vision. What Before their own eyes, Paul and Barnabas just add more evidence from what they had seen. And then James gets up. James was perhaps the most important leader in the Jerusalem church. He's likely the one who would have been most sympathetic to the Jewish teachers who were holding up some of the laws of Moses as necessary for Christians. So you can feel a kind of pregnant pause as James rises. What will he say? In Paul's letter to the Galatians, when he wrote about that group that came into Antioch, he described them as men from James. Men who, who came saying, James sent us here. We come with his authority. James sets the record straight here. James rises and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Peter points to what God has done. James points to what God said he would do and realizes you've seen it all. God already promised to do exactly what we've seen him do. He promises that he will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, rebuild its ruins and restore it. And the Gentiles who are called by my name will seek the Lord. This is Amos chapter 9. So far, so good. His conclusion, verse 19, we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So far, so good. We don't have to circumcise them. Don't have to put the law of Moses on them. He's agreeing with Peter. But then, then all of a sudden, verse 20 says we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. As soon as he said they shouldn't burden the Gentiles, it seems like that's precisely what he goes on to do. As soon as it looks like he's agreeing with Peter that all you need is the grace of the Lord Jesus, he puts four new restrictions on the lives of these Gentiles and tells them to go and obey. Why? I mean, on, the, on the surface of this, to me, it, just, it looks like a straight-up disagreement between them. But I, anytime we see a place like this where there's not an easy, quick answer, it's, it's an invitation to look deeper, to dig more, to consider what Luke had in mind in putting these things back to back because he wasn't crazy. He would have caught the contradiction if there was one. What, what, what's the connection? And when we look closer at this list and how James justifies it, it not only fits with what Peter has said about grace already, uh, it shows us one of the most important effects that the grace of the Lord Jesus has 
on our lives when we taste it for ourselves. Here's what I mean. At, at a really quick glance, I assumed what, what James is doing here is taking the law of Moses and trying to trim it down to size. Like maybe his favorite laws, we'll keep those. These four you'll, you'll, you'll keep and, and it'll be a kind of a compromise solution. That's not at all what's, what's happening. He says nothing about the law here. He doesn't cite the law of Moses. Nowhere do these four items show up as a kind of greatest hits list or executive summary of the law. This package just wasn't a thing in Judaism. There's a much better explanation for what's going on with these four requirements than, than that he's, he's pulling Moses back from the past to impose him on these Gentiles. A better explanation, and I owe this to New Testament experts who pointed the way for me, a better explanation is to see this package as related to pagan worship that would have been the background for the Gentiles. These, these things, these four things, they were associated with temple worship and paganism. Meat wasn't something most people had. They couldn't afford it. If you got to have meat, it was probably because you went to the temple where meat was being sacrificed, and once the sacrifices were done, you could have some of it to eat. The blood and the strangulation, these are, these are references to how meat would have been prepared for sacrifice in a pagan temple. And sexual immorality was also associated with pagan temple sacrifices and rituals. This package fits as part of the old way of doing religion that the Gentiles had come out of. He's telling them, give it all up. I think this makes even more sense when you look at verse 21. How James justifies giving up these things. He says in verse 21, From ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, the places where you live as Gentile Christians have Jews in them. Some of those Jews are now Christians. And it'll be really hard for them if you hold on to some of your practices, even the ones that aren't technically wrong, like eating meat. That has to do that had some connotation with, with sacrifice. Nothing wrong with that meat. Paul says this in another letter. It's fine on its own. It doesn't matter if there's blood in it. it. Doesn't matter if it was strangled. These rules themselves don't matter to God. But to your Jewish brothers and sisters, they carry connotations that bring all of paganism right into their community. So don't do it. Give it up. Who cares? What is it to you if you keep on eating meat? See, here's the principle for us. We are only ever saved by the grace of Jesus. There's nothing we can add to or take away from what he's done. But, 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 what Jesus has done for us has a huge effect on our lives, on the choices that we make. When we take his grace into ourselves, it affects how we live. And that is nowhere more clear, nowhere more pervasive than in how we treat other people. Experiencing the grace of God turns us loose, not to do whatever we want, but to love other people in the way they need to be loved. The freedom we get from having to spin our wheels trying to justify our lives is not a freedom to then just go and do. It's a freedom to be used to serve others, even when it means setting aside something that on its own is just fine. Paul makes this point in Galatians 5. The whole letter is a systematic takedown of the idea that you have anything to add to Jesus. And he gets to the end of his letter. He's summing it up. This letter about freedom, about the complete accomplishment of all of his ends that Jesus experienced when he was here living and dying and rising for us. It's all done. It's a package. It's there. 
at the very end of this letter, Paul's conclusion is, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, to serve yourself. Don't use your freedom for you, but through love, serve one another. For, for Christians, freedom is not a pretext for destroying unity. It's a tool for protecting it. Christians who, who've experienced the grace of Jesus in their lives, they don't get too worked up over their rights and whether or not everybody else is respecting them. Christians, they, they look at meat and they say, you know what, if I have Jesus' grace in my life, I can do without the meat, especially if that helps my brother or sister. Let's raise the stakes even more. One chapter over from this one, Paul will have his disciple Timothy, a Greek man, circumcised. Because of all the Jews who live in the area, they want to do ministry together. Paul had written in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. So Timothy, who cares if you're circumcised? Go get circumcised as an adult man so that you can do ministry without, without any barriers in this area with all these Jews. His freedom he used not to protect himself, but to give himself away. What counts is faith working through love. Our freedom is for others. And the sign of a church that gets the grace of the Lord Jesus is it'll be a collection of people not super skilled and advocating for themselves, but a church of people who love to outdo one another in showing honor, who consider others more important than themselves. So let's pray now, friends, that God will make us a church like that for his glory. Father, we do ask you, by the power of your spirit working fruit in us, to overcome the selfishness that even lives in us as Christians and to turn us loose towards one another to love and, and, and give, to defer wherever we can because we've, we've found something more precious in Christ. We want to see him honored through our sacrifice for each other. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.